This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Good afternoon, this is Steve Inskeep, and you're listening to State of Ukraine. We bring you NPR's best reporting on a war that is changing the world. It is Monday, March 28th, and we start with news that Russians can't get anymore. Novaya Gazeta is ceasing operations. That newspaper was about the last independent voice in Russian media. The editor, Dmitry Muratov, says they'll stop publishing until the end of Russia's military operations. A new law threatens prison for alleged fake news, and they'd received a couple of warnings, they say. A bit later, we'll hear a story from barely six months ago when the editor received a Nobel Prize. Peace talks between Ukraine and Russia resume tomorrow, and in Ukraine itself, the battle lines are moving. Our colleague Elsa Chang spoke with NPR's Becky Sullivan, who's in Lviv, Ukraine. In terms of fighting on the ground, what's the latest there? Mm-hmm. There are two big trends happening over the past week. The first is that Russia seems to be shifting focus, basically changing to more of a defensive posture, standing still instead of advancing around Kiev, uh, and maybe looking to intensify their efforts in the south and especially in the eastern part of the country, which means places like Mariupol, the city on Ukraine's southeast coast, will probably see even more shelling in the weeks ahead. Uh, today, the mayor there said that 5,000 civilians have died there a number that we can't verify because it's really not safe to come anywhere near the city. Uh, And then the other element here is that Ukraine appears to be mounting some successful counteroffensives. Today I talked to Major Andriy Shulga. He's a spokesperson for the Dnipropetrovsk region, territorial defense. Here's what he had to say. What he's saying here is that successful counterattacks are taking place throughout the country, which which the Pentagon confirms. The biggest ones appear to be in the south near the city of Kherson, which was really the only major city that Russia has taken so far. Uh, and then they're also making moves in the northeast near the city of Sumy. And Ukraine also said today that they've retaken Irpin, which is a suburb northwest of Kiev that has seen some heavy shelling. Obviously, it's too soon to say that the tide is turning, but it it does sound like Ukraine's forces have been able to hold on. What does the outlook look like for Ukraine at this point in this war? Yeah, you know, I think it's changing from what a lot of analysts expected at the outset. Um, Part of that is that Russia really has mismanaged the war so so far, especially in the early days. Uh, Another factor is that just over the past eight years, Ukraine's military really has become a much more professional and experienced military and much more well-equipped thanks to years of being supplied weapons by the West. Um, and Ukrainian officials sound increasingly confident about a Ukrainian victory and everyday people too, frankly. One key could be the changing weather. Before the invasion, experts uh, widely viewed winter as key to Russia's goals, um, in part because Tanks and other heavy equipment move better on frozen ground, but it's late March now, and so the ground's no longer frozen, of course. And yesterday I talked to Ilko Boshko. He is a regional military spokesperson here in the Dnipro area, and here's what he had to say. Right now, spring is coming, you know, it's still coming. It will be totally fulfilled with greenery, and it's really good for gorillas to start working with Just one uh, Molotov cocktail can fire just one tank. Basically, he's saying 
As spring comes and the greenery here gets lush, the better that is for guerrilla warfare, which is the kind of fighting that Ukraine has been doing. Those guys with the stingers and the javelins, they can stand in the trees where they're much harder for the Russians to spot. Um, now, that said, spring does come late here. It snowed yesterday in Dnipro. Um, trees are only just starting to bud. So I followed up with him by asking, you know, it sounds like you're saying this might be long war. And he agreed, but he does think that Ukraine can hold on. Yeah. That is NPR's Becky Sullivan reporting from Dnipro, Ukraine. Thank you so much, Becky. You're welcome. Now, one way to measure the cost of Russia's invasion is the millions of Ukrainians who have fled. Russia's cost can also be measured in people who fled. Many people with connections to the wider world have been leaving Russia, and that includes Americans with long histories there. Some of them spoke with NPR's Greg Myrie. Journalist Michelle Birdie arrived in Moscow shortly after graduating from Amherst College in 1978. On March 9th, she caught a ride out of Russia with one suitcase, her dog Riley, and no idea when or if she might return. Before I left, I cried 20 times a day. I just could not believe that I would have to leave and maybe not come back. When Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, Birdie initially planned to stay put and keep working at the Moscow Times, an English-language newspaper. But she knew it was time to leave a few days later when Russia passed a law saying anyone criticizing the war could get up to 15 years in prison. You can't call it a war. You can't call it an invasion. You can't call Russia the aggressor. It would be impossible to obey the law. And it just seems suddenly just very dangerous for all of us. She's seen a lot over the past four decades. The collapse of the Soviet Union, political chaos, financial meltdowns, but nothing like this. I had three days to figure out what of my entire life that I had in Russia, I could put in a suitcase and a take-on bag. (laughs) I just left a full apartment. How do you leave an apartment for... Two months or two years. She took a van to Riga, Latvia. It cost 100 euros for my dog and 90 euros for me. Hundreds of American companies are pulling out of Russia, and Dale Buckner is helping some of them. Buckner's company, Global Guardian, has chartered four flights out of Moscow for American executives, their families, and many Russian employees at those companies. Here's the gritty reality. In all of these evacuations, we've typically had two, no more than four days of warning to tell our clients, you're leaving, this is the airport, this is the aircraft, here's your timeline, here's your destination. He says his company has helped more than 2,000 people leave by air and by road. About one-third are Americans and Europeans, the other two-thirds are Russians. He's worked with eight U.S. and multinational companies, though he declines to name them. Russian authorities are not preventing Russians or foreigners from leaving, but, Buckner says, They're now conducting what they're calling interviews. You're being interviewed of who you are, where you're coming from, who you work for, why are you departing, where are you headed, what's your final destination? The State Department says it doesn't have reliable figures on how many Americans were living in Russia before the war or how many have left. But those who fled are believed to be in the thousands. Meanwhile, Michelle Birdie says that even if she can go back to Russia eventually, it won't be the same. 
Before she left, some of her Russian acquaintances seemed to be living in what she called an alternate reality. They would just say to me, you know, what is wrong with Biden? He won't leave us in peace. I just can't imagine going back and saying, oh, well, that's over now. You know, it's not going to be over. It's going to take a really long time. Russia now faces a reckoning, she says, one that will be long and painful. Greg Myrie, NPR News. Now, we mentioned earlier that one of Russia's last independent media voices is shutting down. In the face of a new media law, Novaya Gazeta is ceasing operations, it says, until the end of Russia's military operation in Ukraine. Less than a year ago, months ago, the editor was sharing a Nobel Prize. So let's go back to that moment from what seems like a different world. Here's how it sounded then with NPR's Charles Mays. In announcing the award for Dmitry Muratov, Nobel's committee chair, Barrett Rice Anderson, cited his newspaper's years of investigations and critical reporting on politics, corruption, and human rights. Novaya Gazeta is the most independent newspaper in Russia today, with a fundamentally critical attitude towards power. Muratov was among a group of journalists who founded the paper in the early 1990s, reflecting a push for newfound freedoms in post-Soviet Russia. But the newspaper came to pay a heavy price for holding truth to power. Six of its reporters have been killed in connection with their work, including the murder of star journalist Anna Politkovskaya in her Moscow apartment building in 2006. Speaking to a scrum of media and supporters outside Nova Gazeta's office in Moscow, Muratov dedicated the prize in their memory. It is first and foremost an acknowledgement of our fallen colleagues, said Muratov, who also praised a new generation of Nova Gazeta reporters who followed in their wake. The Nobel Committee's recognition comes as a growing number of Russian journalists and media outlets have been labeled foreign agents by the government, a move widely seen as an attempt to silence independent voices. Murata vowed to support other Russian independent media, but admitted even he wasn't clear if Nova Gazeta would run afoul of the government for accepting the Nobel Prize money. The Kremlin congratulated Muratov on his prize, even as the Justice Ministry was announcing it had made new additions to its list of journalists it labels foreign agents, among them Yelena Solivyova. An independent journalist based in Siftivkar in the Russian Arctic, Solivyova says she's thrilled for Muratov, but also worried for the future. She also sees this year's Nobel Prize as belonging to all Russian journalists trying to tell the truth about their country. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. That was his report from six months ago. And here's how much has changed in the time since. As we mentioned, Novia Gazeta is shutting down. And less than a week ago, in one of the newspaper's last editions, Dmitry Muratov said that he would sell his Nobel Peace Medal to raise money for Ukrainian refugees. This is State of Ukraine, where we're highlighting NPR's best reporting of the Russian invasion. I'm Steve Inskeep. For more coverage, you can check out Up First, NPR's morning news podcast. This episode was produced by Sean Saldana and edited by Kelly Dickens and Catherine Laidlaw. This is NPR News.
This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. 